Welcome to A Legacy of Generosity, a podcast produced by the Leave a Legacy Committee of the Minnesota Gift Planning Association. You'll hear lessons learned, trends, and best practices from experienced gift planning professionals to help you succeed in increasing legacy gifts for your organization. We are grateful to our sponsors, the Minnesota Initiative Foundations. To learn more about the work they do, visit greaterminnesota.net. Now, here are your hosts. Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Christy Ackley, and we're here with co-host Ali Schneider and our guest Craig Ruck. We've got a great show planned for you today as we dive into the topic of matching donor intent with your organization's needs. To give you a little background on our guest, Craig's experience in charitable giving spans over 40 years in both the nonprofit and for-profit world. I was first introduced to Craig's expertise at a brisk walk through the basics workshop a few years back when I received a copy of Craig's book, Planned Giving in a Nutshell, which is a great resource for helping any development professional or volunteer engage in these important and exciting donor conversations. Christy, I'm really excited to have Craig with us today. Matching our donors' passion with the mission of our organizations is so important in fundraising, and I know Craig will have some great insights about this. Yes, this is going to be a great episode, and I do have to give a shout out to Craig because as I told my co-host just a couple minutes ago, the idea for this podcast was actually Craig's um, about a year ago, maybe, maybe two years ago. So thank you, Craig, for helping us come up with this idea and, and get us started. And welcome to the show. Well, thank you both. Um, and, and thanks for having me. This will, be, uh, this will be fun and hopefully informative too. Yes, I think it will be. And Craig, would you be so kind as to share a little bit more about your background with our listeners? Sure. I, I always bristle a little bit when in the introduction someone says 40 years, but it has been. Um, I started in plan giving uh, in the mid-70s. Shortly after the regulations under Tax Act of 69 had been finalized, which really was the beginning of planned giving, I was working at a college on the West Coast, and someone needed to go listen to a lawyer explain the new world of planned giving. And frankly, I was low man on the totem pole, so I got picked, um, and literally everything changed for me after that experience. Um, to be able to meld donors' financial and tax interests with their charitable interests was, was just um, unbelievable to me. Um, I came to Minnesota uh, in 1980 under a Northwest Area Foundation grant. Some of you will remember Northwest Area Foundation was seeding planned giving programs then, and I was the recipient of one of those, and um, stayed here for most of the rest of my career. Um, I took a brief mid mid-career detour, uh, went to work in the for-profit sector. I worked for um, what is now U.S. Bank and then U.S. Trust and then Caspic and Company, but then came back to the nonprofit side. And I retired two years ago um, from California State University up in Humboldt. Um, and I'm just really enjoying now having the chance to talk to donors and organizations about, uh, about plan giving. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being here. So, my first question for you, Craig, is really around donor-centered fundraising. You know, this idea of focusing more on what donors care about than trying to make the case that a prospective donor should care about what your mission seems to be the focal point of almost every article, webinar, or talk we're seeing on the latest fundraising trends these days. What does that look like exactly when you're talking to a major or planned gift donor? I really think it's both and. It's not either or. 
um, an important part of our job is making the case for our organization and, and being persuasive. Um, having said that, the very best gifts I've ever worked on are the gifts where the donor is really passionate about the mission and my job is really just to make that the, the, the very best gift, uh, the very best gift possible. We, I'm afraid we have a tendency to um, see donors in one dimension only. Do they have enough money to make a gift to my organization? And uh, the more affluent they are, obviously the better prospect they are. Well, that's really a fallacy. Um, it's really a, it should be a two-factor um, analysis. I'm, I'm, I want to say two-factor authentication, but it should be a two-factor analysis if you if you think about it as a graph. Um, there is donor affluence on one side. They've got to be able to afford to make a gift of, of that size. But there's also donor interest. Um, and what we want to do is look for donors who are both uh, who both have financial means and are interested in our organization. We can build interest in our organization over time. We, we market, we talk persuasively about our mission, we prove our worth to the community. So over time, we can build on that axis. The other thing, though, is we can actually increase a donor's financial ability to make a gift with some of the planned giving tools that we have. Um, I'm afraid sometimes we get so focused on the donor's financial ability, though, that we only, talk, we only focus on can they afford to make this gift. The very best donors are those who believe passionately in our cause, and have the and are fortunate enough to have the resources to to make a really a really good gift. So when I'm talking to a donor, um, I will early introduce the the uh, the concept of the mission and and um, try to try to glean their interest and and see where we can fill in. I can introduce them to program people. Um, perhaps show them some real-life examples of things that have worked, things that my organization has done, and really try to build that, um, that element as well as trying to figure out the, very, the, the best financial gift for them to make. I really like that idea of making sure it's in the best interest of the donor and the organization, Craig. Do you have any favorite questions, or what's your process to kind of get that out of the donor, their interest, their ability? Um, I do. One of my favorite questions, and there, there are variations on the words, um, but one of my favorite questions is early on to ask the donor, what would you like to do with your money that would be meaningful to you? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not my question. There's a fellow down in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Joe Golding is his name. He, he uh, started a company called Advancement Resources. That's really a, Joe, Joe introduced me to that question. But if you're on a, on a good conversational basis with a donor, and you can ask them that question, well, what would you like to do that would be meaningful to you? And then stop talking and just <laughs> listen. You will be surprised at the things that emerge. Um, people, whether it's conscious or not, people have been thinking about um, thinking about what they would like to do. So I've, I have found all sorts of doors that open, um, and frankly, um, some fairly emotional conversations conversations about um, things that maybe happened to that donor or obstacles that they had to overcome. If I can, if I can get an answer to that question, what do you really feel passionate about? Um, then we can start to look for elements within my organization that meet that donor's passion. And that's really the beginning of building a real, a real donor-centered relationship. 
how do you identify those new people that might be aligned with your mission? You know, you're right. We're so used to looking at the capacity, um, but identifying individuals that, that care about the things the organization does, that can be a little bit trickier. So how do you identify them? And then as a follow-up to that, how do you let go of those who just aren't interested? Good questions both. Let me take the second one first. How do you let go? Um, and let me acknowledge that may be the toughest thing for those of mm-hmm. us who are fundraisers to do, to just admit to ourselves that this person, and they may, may be a fine, virtuous person, they may be a, a good leader, um, but this person just is not interested in my mission, in my cause. Um, I spent most of my career in, in uh, public higher education, most of it in universities, which have really broad programs and needs, but there are people who simply aren't interested in public higher education. And to cross that bridge, to realize this person simply isn't interested in um, a public university and let them go um, is really, really difficult. I think part of it is, as fundraisers, we, we have a competitive streak and we're always worried that someone else might be able to turn that person into a real prospect. And so maybe if I just keep cultivating them, Maybe they'll see the light one day and find interest in uh, my mission, but sometimes they don't. So I've disciplined myself to say this person is simply not a prospect at this time. That leaves the door open a little bit for me to, uh, if someone else can pick it up and run with it, um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't view it as, as, my, as my failing. How we identify people... Um, I'm afraid that early on we tend to pigeonhole people. So we have a donor who has been giving us $100 a year for the last 10 years. And we relegate that person to um, automated annual giving sorts of appeals because after all, they're only giving us $100 a year. And time and again, I have seen people like that. uh, And then when they pass on, we find out that they've left a million dollar bequest in their estate. I mean, literally that sort of thing has happened. So I think one of the tricks is we've got to realize that um, donors will make all three kinds of gifts. They will make annual gifts, they will make major gifts, and they will make planned gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not a straight line. Um, it, is, it is not a continuum. It's really a circle. And we really shouldn't be too worried about where they get on that circle. Sometimes I think of it as a, as a carousel. Um, and we want them to get on the carousel and enjoy the ride, but we don't mind if they change horses during the course of their lifetime. So Someone's first interaction with us may be to raise their hand and say, I've I've created a charitable bequest. Yes, let's recognize them for that. And then then let's talk to them about the kind of work that could be done with an annual contribution. Or talk to them about a major gift that could fund an initiative that's in in alignment with the planned gift that they've always made. And that, that can happen all the way around that circle. So I think it's really a matter of being open to where the donor happens to be, the prospective donor happens to be right then, um, and then engaging with them. I think engagement and discovery is the key. That's some of the, uh, I think some of the most fun you can have in this business is those discovery calls where you try to get to ask that passion question. What would you like to do? And then just listen. I love that metaphor of the carousel and kind of I think that's probably the most important part of the donor-centered fundraising, like letting them tell you where they're at and being okay with it. Yeah, I think that's right. And we should keep in mind, we're really, I don't mean to sound um, mercenary about this, it's really the life cycle of the donor. We're in it for life. 
Mm-hmm. And the answer is, yes, we really want you to make all three. We don't, uh, this sounds crass, we don't just want your wallet, we want your soul. Are there ways that you, that you found helpful to determine where they are in that circle? We as a sector are getting better and better about data mining, and I think that's a great thing. Um, it depends a lot on the organization, but um, many of us now are, are collecting regular bits of data, and you know they've they have responded three times in a row to a to an email message about plan giving. That should be a, a big sign for it. So mm-hmm. there are uh, there are a myriad of of flags that donors raise for us. Our job is to be sure we're watching when we see that flag waving. And then um, then follow up. Every call, every time I call someone, does not have to be about a solicitation. Sometimes it could just be to say, you know, I see that you've responded to our last three emails, and I was just wondering, um, what were you thinking? Is there something I can help you with? So it sounds like we just need to do a lot of listening. <laughs> I think if there's one bottom line for me, it's, it is that. Um, we need to listen. And this is a personal opinion of mine. Um, I am myself a, an introvert. Some would tell you I'm an extreme introvert. And there are people who would insist that fundraisers cannot possibly be extroverts. They have to be, or cannot possibly be introverts. They have to be extroverts. Um, I've never found it that way. I, I learn more by listening to people. People will tell me more um, if I just, as I said, stop talking and listen. I think that's so true. I've seen some of the best fundraisers are are exactly that. They're introverts. They just really enjoy that deep connection. Um, and so then you you get really aligned with the with the donors' passions in that way. So I love that absolutely. And I I think too you've got to be to be a good fundraiser. You've really got to be interested in people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really am interested. I have heard so many stories um, over the course of my career. And had the opportunity to inter- to interact with such a range of people that in the ordinary course of, of a lifetime, I would never have had the chance to, to get to know. And you've got to enjoy, you've got to enjoy that part of it. It's true. It really is fun to help someone. It sounds a little cheesy, but like fulfill their philanthropic dreams. Right, right. Those are not just words. So, Craig, let's kind of have an example. Say you have a longtime donor that is very passionate about the organization and they want to make a bequest, but they want to restrict it. How do you have the conversation with the donor to ensure that their intentions are honored while at the same time making sure your organization can fulfill that um, restriction? Great question. And a, a couple of different parts to that. Um, one is, unfortunately, sometimes often, donors make charitable bequests and do not share that detail with us. So the first step is, are you, willing, are you the donor willing to share with us the details of how you want your, your charitable bequest to be used? Um, and sometimes it can take some convincing. Sometimes they think that's prying a little bit. One of the things I want my donors to understand is we want to make absolutely certain we understand what you have in mind because once the bequest is here, it's too late for us to ask you for clarification. And I I can paint the picture of what happens, um, frankly, legally, uh, if not 
if not ethically and for every other reason, if you restrict your bequest in a way that we cannot use it, we simply cannot accept it. Mm -hmm. And so I may have to paint that picture to get them to understand why it's important to have a conversation about, about that restriction, about what exactly do you, the donor, have in mind. Um, if, they, if, if we get there and, they, and they, want, they want to restrict it in a way that just isn't workable, then it's a matter of um, trying to clarify what exactly they had in mind. I can use an example from years ago um, when I was at the University of Minnesota, the veterinary medicine school had a donor who, uh, she was a dear soul, she really loved cats, and she was really interested in um, dental work for cats. Well, hmm. there are issues around dental work for cats, but it's not that important a field. And specifically, and I'm not making this up, she was concerned about the alignment of cats' teeth. Huh. So we, she became the butt of jokes around the office. I have a donor who's interested in feline orthodontia. Um, but that wasn't it at all. And as she and I had several conversations, I was able to ask her, well, what really are you, what really are you trying to do? And we broadened it out, and it turns out it wasn't that narrowly focused in her mind. That just happened to be an issue that she had with, with one of her pets. Mm -hmm. And over the course of that conversation, it was her bequest was broadened. She was endowing now a research program for felines generally, and she had a preference for oral issues that cats serve. So had we just let that go, who knows? We may have wound up with literally a fellowship for feline orthodontia that we would have, that we would have had to turn down because, uh, frankly, there isn't such a thing. So you think kind of telling them, um, making it obvious to our donors that there could be issues in the future was very helpful in getting people to share more about what they wanted the intention for their gift. Yes. And as I said, the first step is we want to make sure we understand what you have in mind, because we are going to do our level best to, to do exactly what you have in mind for this gift. And then if it is something outrageous, of course, um, do not react with horror. Do not tell them that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> But instead, ask them. So, what are you? What are you trying to achieve here? And let's let's mm -hmm. let's uh, let's make sure that we understand. And perhaps there's a slightly broader way to term what you have in mind that will that will serve the, the test of time. That's really great advice. And um, early on in our podcast, we did the nightmare stories of bequests. Was one of our first episodes, and one of our guests shared. Um, the opposite side of a story like that, where they, they did not know their donor's intent for their request. And when the gift came through, they did have to turn it down um, because of the, they didn't have the capacity to do what the donor wanted. So um, really great advice to our listeners to, to and do as much as you can. I think it's important to be upfront with donors about that. That's, mm -hmm. That is uh, simply a matter of law. We are not allowed to accept that bequest unless we really can do what the donor had in mind. Mm -hmm. That's great. So what other things should we be thinking about when it comes to donor intent? We are an agent sometimes between the donor and the, and the organization. And I think there is, a, there is an ethical burden that we have, as, as, uh, particularly as planned giving officers, to make sure that the organization really understands um, what, this, what this gift is intended to do. We're all driven by goals. We all 
people want to 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 see the gift closed. Um, you know, your your mother was not right when she told you it's not the gift that matters. It is the gift that matters in our business. We we have to close these gifts. And sometimes, it's really tempting to just sort of blow by that the stoner really wants to put braces on cats. Um, I'll just I'll just kind of let that slide. But instead, engage in the conversation with the with the program experts to find out whether or not that's even a possibility. And sometimes, as I said, that all of the all of the metrics, all of the all of the inducements for us as fundraisers are to to raise more money than we did last year. Um, but I don't think there are shortcuts. And I have been around long enough, as as uh, as someone said in your earlier podcast, I have been around long enough to see some of those those horror stories, and they're, they're not pretty. You can you can spend a lot of time cleaning up. And these days, um, an organization can pay a real um, PR price. For that sort of thing. So Craig, what if you're trying to help your donor figure out their passion with your organization? Maybe they just really like your organization, but they don't, and they want to maybe restrict or kind of designate their gift. How do you figure, help them figure out what they're passionate about within your organization? You know, maybe it is my, uh, my undergraduate degree was in journalism. I actually dreamed of being a reporter one day. Um, have never really, never really did that work. But maybe it's that training. It's it's a matter of questioning. Um, I'm afraid there is no script for a good plan giving call for any fundraising call, really. So it's all improvisation. But um, you know that question: What are you interested in? What's meaningful to you? That leads to an answer. That answer, if you're if you're listening, if you're if you're playing in the moment. Um, should lead to another question for you, and you you are there because your organization is paying you to be there. So you should always be thinking in the back of your mind about how this could relate to our organization, how this could relate to the mission of our organization. So someone says something that suggests maybe they're more interested in children and young people than they are in the arts. Well, if that's part of the mission of my organization. Maybe I tell them a two or three sentence story about one of the programs at our organization and see how they react to that. Um, I think we can guide these conversations. I, I really do not mean to say that we simply let the donor take the driver's seat. Um, that's not our role. Our role really is to build the case for our, for our organization. You touched on something that I'm sure a couple of our listeners are going, what? There's no script. This is improvisation. Uh, um, you know, you're right. We're, we tend to be pretty competitive. And so the idea that there's not a specific way to have these conversations can be really scary in all of your years of experience. What would you say to those new fundraisers who are going, but I got to get it right? So we could, I suppose, go deep into pop psychology. Um, <laughs> you're not going to get it right. You're going to blow it. Um, you're going to have donors hang up on you, kick you out of the house. Um, you're going to be embarrassed when you go back and tell your executive director or your president um, how that went. It's, it's simply going to happen. But it really is improvisation. I think part of what has sustained me is... Um, much as I, as I think I'm an affable and likable person, on a good day, two out of three people are going to respond well to me. And those one out of three just aren't going to click with me for whatever reason. 
If you're fortunate enough to be in a big organization, that's relatively easy to deal with. I would like to introduce you to my colleague. Perhaps you'll get along better with her than you do with me. I mean, you wouldn't say it exactly that way. <laughs> but um, back to the point of improvisation, it really is improv. Um, many years ago, when I was with the University of Minnesota, as a training exercise, um, we hired some of the folks at the Dudley Riggs Theater to, to do improv for us. Um, there were parts of it that were, that were a brutal exercise because those folks are really good at improv and they do it in front of audiences all the time. But um, the key messages were you need to live in the moment. You cannot just try to remember your next line. You have to respond to what has just happened in front of you. And if you're living in the moment and responding, that's going to shape the next response. And it, it is scary. It is, it is um, working without a net. They talked about, uh, they used the metaphor of trapeze artists and how if you wait, if you wait until you can grab a hold of the next trapeze, you're never going to be very good at it. You have to have the faith to let go of the trapeze that you're on and reach for the next one in order to, in order to make it work. It's scary, but it's auxiliating at the same time. Very, very true. So before we go, Craig, we like to ask every guest this last question. What's the best advice you've ever received? Interesting couple. Arthur uh, had to drop out of college because he, his, his scholarship was revoked, and it was in the depths of the Depression. Um, and he wound up riding the rails and becoming an artist and quite successful. Um, Arthur had been, a, had been a donor for a number of years at a modest level. I was talking to him about a charitable gift annuity. Uh, and he seemed interested, and it seemed like a good match for them. It was back in the day when uh, we had just gotten the color laser printer. So I put together a proposal for Arthur. It was probably 20 pages long. It had color graphs in it. It was uh, comb-bound with a clear cover on it, and I sent it off to Arthur in Florida. Um, a few days later, a week or so later, I got a picture postcard from Arthur, and it said, Craig, thanks for the information. Don't you have something that will fit on one side of a postcard? Mm -hmm. And what I realized is I was trying to tell Arthur everything I knew about charitable gift annuities, including how to calculate the exclusion ratio for the, for the annuity payments. And that wasn't where he was. He had confidence that I knew what I was talking about, and, and he would lead me with his questions. I, have an I had an obligation to make sure that he understood all of those details before he made the gift, but I think we make the mistake sometimes. I think what Arthur taught me is we make the mistake sometimes of trying to have to know, feeling that we have to know everything before we can go one step further in that conversation with the donor. But I'll always remember Arthur sending me a postcard saying, don't you have something that'll fit on one side of a postcard? Um, and he's right, I did. In the end, Arthur and his wife made several gift annuity gifts and, and endowed um, a fairly substantial scholarship for the high school, the rural high school that he graduated from, because Arthur wanted to make sure that no one ever had to face the trials that he had to when his scholarship was, was revoked in the Depression. Wow. Wow. What a great lesson that Arthur taught you. Um, that is my favorite part of working with donors is just how much they teach us, you know, um, 
It's just incredible. Thanks for sharing that with us and our and our listeners. Well, and it really is true, isn't it? In especially in the field of plan giving, we have the privilege to work with some of the finest people, and and under the best circumstances, they're they are well motivated. They just want to make the world a better place, and I count it an honor to to be able to work with people like that every day. That is so true, because by including us in their estate plans, they're essentially saying that our organization is like a part of their family. Right, exactly. Well, that's it for our show today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or follow Leave a Legacy Minnesota on LinkedIn to be notified of our future episodes. Thanks everyone for listening, and we hope you join us next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Legacy of Generosity podcast. If you like what you've heard, please click subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. For show notes and access to other free educational content, visit leavealegacymn.org and click Resource Library. Consider joining us as a member of the Minnesota Gift Planning Association for Networking and Comprehensive Education. And connect with us on LinkedIn to share your feedback. Make it a great day.